0: This life study is the basis for our program today and includes short portions of the spoken messages given by Witness Lee. Now, let's join today's program. As Barnabas and Paul were preaching the gospel and establishing new churches in Asia, men came from Judea, Christians, instructing the new believers that to be properly saved, they must follow the customs and laws given by Moses. What effect did this have on God's move among the Gentiles? And how did the apostles resolve this new crisis? We'll look at this potential devastating development in the first century church on today's Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program furnished by Living Stream Ministry. Watchman Nee was a brilliant and promising young student in mainland China when the Lord called him in 1920. A marvelous and prevailing move of the Lord soon followed, And a decade later, another young Chinese named Witness Lee joined him in this ministry, preaching the gospel and establishing New Testament churches throughout mainland China. The eventual imprisonment of Watchman Nee by the communists in 1952 led to this ministry being brought west, and in 1974, Witness Lee began the crowning work of his life, the life study of the entire Bible. Faithful to the grace and light given to him by the Lord and true to the vision of his co-worker, Watchman Nee, he completed this book-by-book exposition in 1995. He went to be with Christ in 1997. We have recorded portions of that ministry today from the Book of Acts, and we also have Ron Kangas with us as we look at one of the first major problems that confronted the church. Ron, I think this will be an important and interesting program today.
1: Important, for sure, and interesting I really believe so, as we consider how to have the proper understanding of this important event.
0: Ron, before we get into the message, I think that we may need a word regarding how we study the Bible. And we're going to hear Witness Lee today speak regarding portions of the word in Acts, pointing out even some inadequacies in some of the leading figures in the New Testament, such as James and even Peter. This might be difficult for some to understand, and this is why I felt it'd be good to maybe address this matter before we begin. Of course, we do believe that the Bible in its parts and in its entirety is inerrant. But that doesn't mean necessarily that the ones depicted in all of its accounts were free of error, excluding, of course, the Lord Jesus.
1: The Bible we regard as infallible and inerrant. It's uh, accurate in all its details. But to use an obvious example, the Bible records the words of the devil and it describes the activities of the devil. What we have, then, is a very accurate exposure of the devil, of the enemy. Sometimes we may idealize the persons we call Bible heroes. Really, that's not a biblical notion. Whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, And we may not understand that the Lord may intend in his word to include a record of the shortcomings or the defects or even the failures of even some of his best servants in order that we may learn from them. So we should not be surprised if we find out in the course of today's message that there is a critical examination of certain figures maybe Peter or James, we are not diminishing them and we are not reading into the text. Rather, we are endeavoring to be faithful to unfold what is there in the text and the light that this kind of unfolding contains. So, be prepared, dear listener, that when you hear us give some seemingly critical observations of James or Peter, this is not our opinion. Rather, this is, honestly, our understanding of what the Word is saying for our learning. So actually, we do not detract from the Word. Rather, we uphold the integrity and inerrancy of the Word by endeavoring to say exactly what the Scriptures themselves are saying.
0: Ron, that was a very helpful backdrop for today's message, and I think you cleared it up. It was enough said. So with that, why don't we join Witness Lee with the first portion of our life study.
2: Up to this point, Peter was not that weak. Let me read to you. Verse 7 says, And when much discussion had taken place, actually, Peter should not let much discussion take place. Peter should be bold to save time. Then Peter stood up. Peter rose up and said to them, Men, brothers, you know that from the early days God chose among you that through my mouth Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Very good, but not so strong. Peter should say, you know, the Lord Jesus told us, we are his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, even in the remotest part of the earth. He was not that bold. He didn't exercise his authority assigned to him by the head. If he did, that would solve a lot of problems. That would cut off this poisoned flow. He was too nice. He should give a stronger testimony, but his testimony here, the wording is not so strong. God, the Knower of Hearts, bowiness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as also to us, and He made no distinction at all between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. All good points, but presentation is too weak. He should have presented stronger points. And now, praise all that. Peter gave such a testimony. He gave such a fellowship. But I feel he didn't exercise the authority that the Lord gave him. Don't forget, he was the leading apostle. He did have his realm of the divine authority, but he didn't use it. He didn't exercise it.
0: Well, Ron, there is much in this first section that we could talk about regarding the shortage in Peter's speaking related to this major problem now infecting the body of Christ. Of course, Peter did eventually speak. It's curious, isn't it, that after the miraculous events surrounding his experience in the house of Cornelius and the vision that God had given him, there was no mention of this at
1: all in his eventual speaking. This is very significant the book of Acts describes a gradual but eventually absolute with Paul dispensational transfer from the Old Testament economy to the New Testament economy. Uh, dear brothers such as Peter and James, their whole life had been under the Old Testament economy. It was not easy for them or anyone to make this transfer in full. I believe that in our study of the way Peter did and did not speak, we can see two things. One is we see that our brother Peter, our representative actually in this respect, needed to advance in his own experience of this dispensational transfer. He needed to experience the Lord more, to be enlightened by the Lord more, that he himself could advance more fully into God's New Testament economy. We also see, and we have to admit that James is the one who helps us see this, that there was in Jerusalem a powerful, even prevailing influence of the uh, things of the Old Testament dispensation that made it rather difficult to speak forthrightly. We know from Galatians that Peter was afraid when certain ones came from James. It seems that Peter was intimidated by the presence of these representatives of James and he stopped eating with the Gentile believers and Paul couldn't bear with that, and Paul had to speak a frank and direct word to Peter before them all for the sake of the truth of the gospel. So, what do we have here? We have a transition taking place, and we have dear brothers like Peter who need to make more progress with the transition. We also see, especially in James, a certain strong influence a lingering influence of the things of the Old Testament dispensation. And to anticipate a little what's coming, this led and leads today to a compromising situation. And our God is absolutely not a God of compromise. He is absolute, and he cannot bear for there to be any mixture or compromise with respect to his New Testament economy.
0: Well, Ron, let's go and get into this portion that you've alluded to. We are going to look at James and the elements of this compromise. Here's Witness Lee.
2: And all the multitude were silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul relating all the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And after they were silent, James answered, To take out of them, of the Gentiles, a people for his name. With these, the words of the prophets are great. Even as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will erect it again. These quotations of the Old Testament still uplift the nation of Israel. Don't forget the preparation chapter 1. The disciples were that much for the kingdom of Israel. And they asked the Lord, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The Lord ignored that. The Lord said, but you have to wait till the Holy Spirit falls upon you, then you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and in the remotest part of the earth. But here, Jesus, in order to take care of the situation. He uplifted the nation of Israel again. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the Tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will erect it again, so that, so that indicates, the Lord has firstly to rebuild the nation of Israel, so that, after that, then the Gentiles, oh, terrible, so that, the rest of mankind may seek out the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name has been called. This is the prophecy not referring to the situation in Acts 15. This prophecy means in the coming days the Lord will come back at his second coming. To rebuild the nation of Israel, by that time, all the Gentiles will come to seek after the Lord. James' quotation follows the Old Testament without any discernment. This was a prophecy, not referring to the present age, but referring to the second coming.
0: Well, Ron, we've looked, even somewhat critically, at Peter's word. And now we come to James, the elder in Jerusalem, the flesh brother of the Lord Jesus, and the one that seemed to have the last word in this matter. Acts does reveal a lot about James and his rather incomplete grasp, it seems, of God's New Testament economy, doesn't it?
1: It does. And here we see a certain mixture in James, a certain straddling defense between the Old and New Testament economies. Surely, James is a brother in the Lord. He has the saving faith. He's for the essential truths of the gospel. But his way of quoting from Amos, the way he contributes to this situation shows that he's still very much influenced by Old Testament concepts. So, on the one hand, he was in function here, as a leading one to give his word. Eventually, someone needs to give a kind of summary word or final word in fellowship. It was appropriate for him to do that and to sum up the the sense of the one accord in fellowship and express it. What's crucial for our learning is to analyze the way James did this. What is actually recorded in Acts 15 concerning how James went about this, his tone of speech, the tenor of his fellowship, his way of handling the Scriptures, if we study this fairly with the light of the Scripture as a whole shining on us, we will eventually come to the conclusion that here we see some amount of mixture, some amount of compromise. To say the least, here we see a need for a particular brother, even an apostle, and he's called an apostle, James, to make a fuller transition into the New Testament economy. To present the record this way, really takes uh, some light from the Lord through his word. If we ourselves read in a natural way, or if we ourselves are, so to speak, Old Testament Christians as we read Acts, we will not pick up these points. But if we are in the New Testament economy, and if we have made a dispensational transfer into the New Testament economy, and then we come to this chapter we'll begin to see this from a different perspective, which is more faithful to the Scriptures and not less. We are not judging James. We are not condemning him. We're not saying we don't have the shortage that he has. But we are endeavoring to be faithful to what is in the Word of God, why it is there, and what the Lord would want us to learn from this particular crucial event in the early history of the church.
0: Ron, this is a profound point. Uh, We have a little more of it ahead. Uh, This final section, I think, will make it even more clear. Let's rejoin Witness Lee.
2: In Luke chapter 4, the Lord Jesus quoted something from the Old Testament to show that God in this age was going to put the nation of Israel aside and to pick up the Gentiles. But here, James was trying to please the Jewish elders, telling them that God will first rebuild the nation of Israel. Not going to reject, to put the nation of Israel aside, but to build it first. Then, the turn will go to the Gentile dogs. You better compare. Paul, in chapter 13, was very bold. Paul, in chapter 13, told the rejecting Jews, as you reject, we'll go to the Gentiles. Chapter 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly and said, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it away and judge yourselves unworthy of the eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. God turned to the Gentiles not because he has rebuilt the nation of Israel, but because you Jews rejected him. Okay, anyhow, you could see here, James had such a good but weak fellowship. And then, chapter 15, verse 19 says, Wherefore I judge that we do not harass those from the Gentiles who turn to God very good, but that we write to them, to abstain from the pollutions of idols and fornication and what is stangled and blood. Verse 21, For Moses from ancient generations, that means the books of Moses, has in every city those who proclaim him in the synagogue being read every Saturday. So, James' fellowship was based upon verse 21. Why we have to put in this charge in our writing? To charge them to abstain from the pollution of idols and fornication and water, strangle and blood. Because the law of Moses was there all the time for generations being read by people. So in our solution of the problem, we must take care of Moses. So the sound was still there concerning Moses. This doesn't agree, doesn't correspond with what Paul wrote in the books of Galatians and Romans. Because in the books of Romans and Galatians, Paul told us he had nothing to do with the law. To the law, he said, I am crucified. To the law, I am dead. But what James talks about, to bring the New Testament believers back to the consideration of the law. James' concept was too much in the old dispensation. I call this a compromising solution. So, the mixture was there. The mixture, the religious mixture, the mixture of God, New Testament economy with the old Judaism was there already. This was a mixture of God's New Testament economy with the old dispensational Judaism.
0: Well, Ron, we finally have a solution to this critical dilemma facing the brothers in the first century churches. And it had elements that were marvelous and some other elements that were maybe not so marvelous. The most notable of which is that it did establish a precedent for compromise. And I believe that it's fair to say this precedent uh, and its effects still plague the church today. Do you agree?
1: I have to agree. And there are a number of things I would like to bring out uh, in my fellowship here. It's not easy for us to be absolutely faithful to the divine revelation. And it is not easy for us to be absolutely faithful to the Spirit and to the Lord and to his way of carrying out his eternal purpose. We can only be faithful by Christ as our faithfulness and by his all-sufficient grace uh, wrought into us through some very deep, even radically deep, Experiences of the cross. Why do I mention this? I mention this because there are some hidden and intrinsic reasons for compromise. We may compromise because there's some self-interest present. It's almost like there's a political element. We want some advantage for ourselves. We want to gain something. But we realize if we are really absolute, if we are really straightforward according to God, not in a natural way, others may not be happy, others may not agree, and we may suffer some loss. So some believers, actually many believers, compromise because of some self-interest. Something they want to get, and the only way to get it is to compromise your convictions. But there's another aspect to this. Maybe we don't want something for ourselves, but we want to avoid suffering. We want to avoid criticism or others' displeasure. Or we want to avoid a kind of confrontation. We don't want something for our advantage, but actually we still may want something for self-advantage and that is we want to save ourselves. We want to guard ourselves from taking the narrow pathway of the cross. One thing we see in the life of Paul was a man who lived a crucified life, who loved the Lord Jesus to the uttermost and could say, the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. He could say, I have been crucified with Christ I do not live any longer. Christ lives in me, and now I live in oneness with Christ. Because Paul, by the Lord's grace, became a person absolute for Christ and absolutely willing to experience Christ crucified with him, ultimately. Even he had a a kind of shortcoming temporarily, ultimately, There was no compromise at all. He could be trusted to speak faithfully, frankly, honestly, and thoroughly on behalf of the divine revelation. So, what we have here on the one hand, we have the influence of the old religious things that affect our judgment and affect our way of carrying out our ministry for the Lord. These, nevertheless, are mainly outward. On the other hand, in our natural being, in our fallen being, there's a political element. There's what we may call a diplomatic element. There may be a man-pleasing or a man-fearing dimension to our character in our natural makeup. And that can cause us, at a critical time, to compromise, either because we want something or we don't want to suffer something. What the Lord needs today, as evidenced by the book of Acts, is a group of believers in Christ who, by the grace of God, are absolute for God's New Testament economy. And they will live as the Lord intends, and as he said in chapter 1, verse 8, they will live as living witnesses of the wonderful, all-inclusive, resurrected Christ who is everything to God and to the believers in God's New Testament economy. Any kind of compromise, any kind of mixture, for whatever reason, will never be blessed by God. Eventually, it will have to be exposed and judged and purged so that the Lord may have something pure and absolute on the earth, for the satisfaction of his heart's desire and the fulfillment of his eternal purpose.
0: Well, we have a printed Life Study message to go along with the fellowship today, and uh, we recommend that to you very highly. This Life Study message is included in Volume number 3 of the Life Study of Acts. If you're interested in receiving it, please call us toll-free at 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 543-3788. Or request it when you write to us. Our mailing address is Living Stream Ministry, Post Office Box 2121, Anaheim, California, 92814. And our email address is radio at lsm.org. Today, for Ron Kangas, I'm Chris Wild. Thank you very much for listening. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more information on Witness Lee and Watchman Knee, please visit our website, lsm.org. Again, that's
1: lsm.org. Thanks for listening today.